Uh, I don't usually go and watch films twice in the movie theaters. Uh, once is usually enough. Most of the movies aren't worth that even. But um, often uh, in the past, my, my wife will have had her eye or heart caught by a film that we saw the first time, and she will wanted to go a, sec- a second time. It was usually before we had children that she, we had the time to do this sort of thing. There was one film, in, in fact, that she, we watched it the first week, and it was three and a half hours long. It was called Titanic. <clears throat> <laughs> and uh, the boat, boat sinks at the end. I'm sorry, I gave that away there. It sinks at the end. It's a love story. And so we watched it, three and a half hours, and... It was over, and we were driving home, and she's, you know, eyes puffy because she was crying and how hard that was. And I, I was like, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good movie. And uh, the next week, <laughs> the next week, she said to me on Friday night, honey, I just, all week long, that movie is just, I just want to see it again. And I was like, oh. And it was, of course, early in our marriage, so it was before I had the courage to say no to these things. And um, <laughs> I said, okay. Okay. So we went to the film the second time. And, you know, I, I didn't realize how long it was. It was a very, very long film. So about an hour into it, I was like, man, this is going to go for a lot longer than this. And the boat wasn't even in trouble yet. And so, <laughs> so I told her, I got to use the bathroom. So I got up and I went to, actually went to another theater and watched another movie for a little while. <laughs> so... Went to the bathroom, came back, sat down, and she didn't even know I was gone, I don't think. She was so wrapped into the, wrapped into the film. But of course, it, still, it was another good hour before the thing was going to end. And, you know, it just draws on and on and on, and I'm counting the ceiling tiles and trying to figure out whether Leonardo DiCaprio, if I saw him, I'd really want to punch him or not. But finally... Finally, the final scene go, it builds to the scene where the boat starts to go down. And it, it gets a very dramatic scene. It gets swallowed up with the ocean. And uh, there's a guy two rows in front of me who, when the boat finally goes down, yells out in the theater, it's about time. <laughs> and every guy around me was like, <laughs> like nodding. His wife was <laughs> You ever wondered why we love love stories so much, though? I mean, the reason my wife wanted to see it twice was because it is a love story, because it's, you know, for her, she was delightful. I mean, she, we know the arc of all the love stories. There's a romantic comedy that comes out. Like, you know what's going to happen. There's probably going to be an airport involved at some point, and one of the two of them is going to run up to the gate, and, oh, I love you, and I'm sorry we fought, and... Let's get married or not, or whatever the final scene is, but they're together. We know, we know what's going to happen. It's going to be trouble. They're not going to like each other at the beginning. Eventually, they're going to be together. We know, this, we know this story, but we can't help ourselves. We can't. Every time I'm on a, I'm on a plane and Notting Hill is on there, I, you know, secretly, nobody's looking. Okay, I'll watch this, you know? It's, it's warm-hearted. I tell you that because Ruth is a love story. If you've been reading it at all, if you've spent any time in the book of Ruth, it's only a little, four little chapters long, you realize that that's really, that's really what it is. It's about a, a man who becomes a great rescuer for this dear, dear faithful woman, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. If you are new to this, maybe this is your first week, we've been going through this 
book for two weeks previous, so maybe you need a little refresher course. Uh, Naomi is uh, an Israelite woman who is married, but there's no... uh, there's no food in Israel at the time because of a famine, and so they moved to Moab, and that's not a, not a good thing. Moab is not a nice place. It's usually Israel's enemies, and so they moved to Moab, and disaster strikes them there. Naomi loses her husband, and then 10 years later, she loses her two sons who were married to Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. So you've got these three women who are together. They don't know what to do. Back in those days, you needed to have a man to take care of you. Uh, Financially, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't own land if you were a woman. So you need need a man, either a son or or a husband or a father, and they don't have any of that. So Ruth tells these two girls, listen, go back to where you guys came from. The chances of you finding a husband in those places is far better than if you stick with me, but... And Orpah says, yes, you're right, and she goes, understandably. But Ruth sticks around and says, no, I'm not going. I'm not leaving you. So they head back to Israel, not knowing what's going to happen. And in order to get some food, Ruth has to go out into the fields, and she has to do what's called gleaning. You go behind the harvesters, and you pick up what they drop. It was understood that the harvesters, in order to care for the people in their community who didn't have very much, would kind of deliberately leave that stuff behind. They wouldn't go back and clean it up. They'd let the gleaners come, these poor people come and pick it up. And there's Ruth in the fields. And she just so happens to go into the field of a guy named Boaz, who sees her and says, huh, do you know, do you know who that girl is? Takes note of her. Well, she's this Moabitess woman who uh, came with Naomi. They tell him the story. And so he decides that I'm going to make sure that she has everything that she needs. He pulls her aside and says, listen, I need you to stay as close as you can to the back of the harvesters. In fact, I'll tell some of my men to throw, deliberately throw some of the bushels of barley over the side so that you can pick them up. And at the end of chapter two, which is where we were when we last saw our heroes, Ruth 2.23 reads, So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So every night she's going home to live with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and every day she's going to the fields where she's working side by side, we presume, by Boaz. Imagine the conversations that the two of them had as time went on. The relationship starts to build. And we start wondering at the end of chapter two, huh, I wonder what's going to happen between these two. So I'm going to tell you up front, it's weird. Okay? It's weird. So here we go. I want to tell you the story, and then I just want to give you four applications at the end to the story. So let's really engage ourselves a little bit in in this story in Ruth chapter 3. So here it is, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I have to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now listen, she's not looking to find a new house. You know, your bedroom's not big enough, honey. No, she's looking to find a man. Naomi's lovely here. She's basically recognized at the end of chapter two that every day Ruth goes off and she spends time with Boaz and then she comes back and tells her, presumably, what's gone on in the evening. What else are you gonna talk about? There's no radio. 
There's no TV, so you can talk about what's gone on during the day, and Boaz is what's gone on during the day. So Naomi starts to do what every good parent starts to do when you start to see your children, who you want out of your house, <laughs> show interest in another person. You know, and you start to see them connect a little bit. When I was a young adults pastor here, I remember after our, uh, our young adult meetings, services, you know, hundreds of kids would be here and young adults would be here, and we'd, I'd go out in the foyer, and, and I could stand there with the guy I worked with, Matt, and we'd stand there and we'd look around the room and we'd notice that guy talking to that girl, or sometimes they wouldn't be talking, they'd just sort of be hovering around each other first week, and then the next week they would sort of talk, you know, like this, and then the next week she's touching his elbow and whatever, and so... We would go up, and because I tease everybody, so I'd go up to the guy afterwards and say, huh, what's going on with that, eh? And he would be like, what, what, going on with what? <laughs> Come on, man, what's going on with that, with her? And he's like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't. And then quietly he'd say, repeat it, seriously, this happened more than once. He'd say, um, how did you know? <laughs> Come on, man, I know because I got the winner's ring here. You see that? I mean, like... I, I've been through this rodeo before, and you, parents, you know this, right? You, you, you can see it when you get older. You, you realize that they're not being as coy as they think they are. That's what Naomi's done. She notices what's going on between Ruth and, and Boaz. And listen, she's not surprised because she prayed for this. You go back to chapter 1, what you find in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, and then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, this is in the moment when everything has gone wrong and their husbands have died and her husband has died and she's trying to tell them, man, you guys need to go back to your family because it's the only way you're going to find a husband. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord, now here's her prayer, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and me. And may the Lord, oh, I pray that the Lord would grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And Naomi at the moment is thinking to herself, the only way that that's going to happen is if you go back to your homeland and you find a guy. Because I'm some dead weight when it comes to the relationships here. So get rid of me, go back to your homes, find a guy. Of course, Ruth doesn't do it. And so here's this moment, finally, after... Months, Naomi starts to realize, oh, the Lord is actually answering the prayer. Not like I thought. And so she springs to action like a dear Jewish mother. <laughs> Matchmaker. She hatches a plan. She hatches a plan. And listen, this, this plan is weird. Here you go. Verse 2, now Boaz. Now this, isn't, this is Naomi saying to Ruth, this is, this, is my, this is my plan. Now, Boaz, honey, with whose women you've worked, he's a relative of ours. So, so tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So I need you to wash, put on some perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So let, let's, let's take this plan step by step. You got a picture? They're on the couch. Naomi's seen these two 
in the distance and realized, oh, there might be something here for you. And he sits, honey, sit down on the couch. And he puts her hands in her hands and she's, okay, here's what we're gonna do. What I need you to do is first, you need to know that Boaz is going to be down uh, threshing at the threshing floor, winnowing barley. Now, what that means is that uh, they used to take all the, all the barley stalks and they'd put them on a floor, usually on a hill or in a valley, a place where the wind, wind was blowing. And they would step on them themselves or get an animal to step on them or roll over them with rocks or whatever to break the heads of the barley. And then they would take a pitchfork, basically, or some tool like that, and they'd throw it in the air. Now, they're doing it at night because that's usually when the breezes were a little bit less gusty. Consistent breeze was coming across. So they're, they're down there, and they're throwing these broken stalks of barley up in the air, and the chaff would blow away, and the grain would drop. And you do this enough, and you just have a pile of grain. So this is the end of the harvest. This is the greatest moment. And he's going to be down there, honey, tonight. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to wash yourself, because P.U. <laughs> I need you to put on some perfume, and I need you to dress in, in good clothes. Now, we presume that the reason for this is what you and I think it is. I mean, you probably stink. This is not a day of deodorant or antiperspirant or soap. So you... You need to clean yourself up a little bit because what I want you to do for Boaz here, you need to be a little bit more appealing than you currently are. Now, that might be the big reason, but probably what she's telling her is just saying, listen, you need to drop all your mourning clothes here. Mourning, M-O-U-R-N. I mean, she lost her husband and the way that you showed everyone that you were in mourning was you wore black and you sometimes sackcloth and all sorts of horrible outfits and you would go out and that's why no men would ever be interested. So presumably that's what Ruth has been doing for all these days out in the fields. So honey, you need to change your clothes and wash yourself when David, King David, his child dies, he goes into mourning. And when he comes out of mourning, the scriptures say that he washed himself and he put on better clothes and he went to worship the Lord. So that's a signal to the man, Boaz, that you're going to be ready and on the market again, is if you smell better than you do and you look better than you do. So he's winnowing barley, wash, put on perfume, dress, and good clothes. And then I want you to go to the threshing floor and where he is, and then I want you to wait until he's done eating and drinking. Okay, end of the barley harvest, end of the wheat harvest, this is like the culmination of all of their hard work. Have you ever been around a community that does farming? The harvest is a great, great time. At the end of the harvest, it's not uncommon for the men to have a few drinks. So she's saying to him, listen, I need you to just wait for him to be a little lubed up, right? Because we want him to be in good spirits. When he sees you, so wait for him to finish eating and drinking, want him to be in a good mood, and then watch where he lies down, because other men are going to be around there doing the same work. You don't want to pick the wrong guy. That could go very, very wrong, honey. <laughs> and then uncover his feet, lie down, and honey, he'll tell you what to do. Now, I have a question. Ladies. How would you respond to this plan from your mom? 
You've been taking your pills, mom? <laughs> like, are you crazy? And the reason that you respond that way and the reason that we laugh is because like instinctively we read that and think, am I missing something? Because this sounds like a me too moment waiting to happen here. Like you're putting yourself into this horrible situation. Are you kidding? You t- what kind of mother is this? It sounds like it's got massive sexual overtones. Now, some, some commentators on this passage say, no, 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 no. That's just us 21st century people placing our 21st century opinions about sex on, the, on an ancient passage. There's nothing like that there. Okay, I'm going to tell you that they're wrong. And here's why. Here's why. I'll prove it to you, okay? Here you go. Uh, this phrase, to lie down, in Hebrew is... Uh, often used in the Old Testament, the very words are often used in the Old Testament to connote sexual activity, right? So he lied down with his wife. That's the phrase. So I want you to go and lie down at his feet. To uncover, that word is usually used in connection with nakedness. It's used all over the place in the Old Testament. To uncover someone's nakedness is the way you say, oh, you're going to go and have sexual relations with them. Now here, it doesn't say uncover their nakedness. It says, I want you to go and uncover his feet. But you need to know also in the Old Testament, there are several places where the word feet is a euphemism for the genitalia. Now what I mean by euphemism is that, uh, is that you and I sometimes say that, you know, like my wife went to powder her nose. It, you know, okay, she's not powdering her nose in that room over there. I can tell you right now, that's not what's happening, okay? But we use that because it's a nice way of saying something that's a little bit. So to uncover her, uncover his feet can be understood as, you know, take the clothes off him. She also is supposed to wait for Boaz to finish drinking. There are other scenes in the Old Testament namely with Lot and his daughters, where they get Lot to drink as much as he can so that they can have sex with him. So this would not be the first time. The same language is used here, in fact. And the threshing floor in the ancient world was a place that was commonly visited by prostitutes during the, bar- during the harvest season. So if you're the first people listening to that being read to them, You're hearing all of those words, and you're hearing all of that. You're supposed to be thinking, what in the world is this Naomi do? What? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting in any way that Naomi's saying to Ruth, listen, I want you to go and have sex with him. But the language here is kind of, you're on the fence. You're like, this could go horribly, horribly wrong. This is a very sexually charged environment. You're putting your your daughter-in-law in, and you're supposed to, at the end of these verses, going, what's going to so here's what happened. I mean, it's crazy that Ruth greets this. No questions. She doesn't say, bye, lie down. Did you mean? Verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and he was in good spirits, I bet he was, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Right? So it's a signal that he's not near anybody else now. He's way way over there on the edge. Easy access. All alone. And Ruth approached quietly. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. (laughs) She uncovered his feet. And she laid down. 
Time passes. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. You ever had your covers come off your feet? In the middle of the night, you're like, you wake up, your feet are freezing. Right, he's out in the middle of the open air. Something startled the man. Maybe it's that, maybe it's the smell of this woman. And he's like, well, that's different. That's different than the stink I usually smell, and that's actually nice. I don't know, something wakes him up. He turned, and there, behold, it says in Hebrew, lo, whoa, there's a woman lying at his feet. You can imagine the guy sitting up, what? Who are you? He asked. Well, I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Now spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. What's she asking of him? Well, a couple things. First, you need to understand this little phrase, guardian redeemer. It's used in the older versions, kinsman redeemer. What it means is that there was basically a rule in Israel, it's rooted off several Old Testament passages in the law, that if anything happened because of your bad decision, say you lost some of your land because of a bad financial decision, or maybe you had to sell yourself into slavery because you couldn't pay for a bad financial decision. If something really bad happened to you, it was the responsibility of the nearest member of your family to redeem either your property or you, to buy you out of slavery, to redeem the property, to save you. So she comes to him and she's saying, you, you are our guardian redeemer. You know what's happened to me and to my mother-in-law. You know what, where we are. We have, we have nothing. We have no one. And the only way out of this is for us to find a man who will look after us. You're part of our family. I need you to be the guardian redeemer of our family. But she doesn't just want this to be a financial transaction. It's, it's more than that. In fact, she says, I want you to cover me with the corner of your garment. Spread the corner of your garment over me. What does that mean? Well, that same language is used in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, when God is describing how he came to Israel and wanted to make her his wife, to have a covenant with her. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel 16. Later I passed by, says the Lord. And when I looked at you, Israel, I saw that you were old enough for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath. And entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. What's she asking? Marry me. Covenant with me. Save us through a loving marriage. In the middle of the night, she's on one knee with the ring open. There's this great uh, scene, in fact, in the movie Notting Hill. If you haven't seen it, don't. It's okay. But I can't help it. There's a scene, and there's a story about a woman who's a superstar Hollywood mogul, and she's a great actress and known everywhere, and, uh, and a guy who's just a British bloke who just lives in a flat with a weird friend. And, you know... It's weird for the British bloke to know this superstar mogul, but they form this friendship and then relationship, and next they have trouble, and then the next thing you know, that he thinks it's all over. But she shows up in his art shop, and she's art bookstore, and she's, she's standing there, 
Julia Roberts, and she's standing there, and she says to this British bloke, I know that all of this fame and popularity is off-putting to you, and it's weird, but it's all fake, you know. And at the end of the day, she says this great line, at the end of the day, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. It's when my wife like, oh, it's so great. <laughs> That's this moment, though. That's what this is. In every love story, there's a define the relationship talk. There's a moment where their feelings come out for each other, and they have this awkward conversation. You had me at hello. Like you had, This is this moment, and there she is on her knees. Marry me. Save us. And you can imagine the pause. There's got to be a pause. In verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not saying your kindness toward me. He's saying, look, what you've done here is you've shown this rich kindness to your mother-in-law. You're here. You could have run after any man. You could have come back and you could have run after any man. I mean, you're spending all this time in the fields with all these handsome, strapping young men. You could have married for love. You could have fallen for them. And that would, of course, put your mother-in-law in a difficult situation because those guys wouldn't be able to take care of you. But instead, you've chosen to honor her and honor me and sought to keep your promise here to your mother-in-law when you came all the way back. This kindness is greater than the kindness you did before when you made that promise. You do know the movie Titanic is about a, a girl who gets on board the Titanic and she is promised to be married to a wealthy guy who, uh, a wealthy guy who is, he's not the nicest dude around. There's no question about that. But she's doing this. She's getting married to the wealthy guy so that she can preserve the future for her for her mother and her. But in the, on the boat, she meets Leonardo DiCaprio and she falls in love with him and they run around on the boat after each other all the time and hide from the, the mean rich guy who's gonna save her family. And in the end, the boat goes down and he dies and she's left, left alone. The whole story is basically saying you should marry for love and for yourself. Not for your family. And I'm telling you, the Ruth story is like the anti-Titanic story. It's the opposite. It's basically saying, no, you should marry for the covenant. You should marry for the promises you've made and for the people that you actually love. And that's what Ruth's doing. And Boaz notices and thinks, you're a remarkable woman. You're, you're amazing. You act not for yourself, but for the care of Naomi. And now, my daughter, verse 11, don't be afraid. I'll, I'll do what you ask. All the people in the town know that you're a woman of noble character. There's nothing about you that you've ever done among us, even though you're a Moabitess, that has given us any pause regarding how noble you are in your character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of a family, though, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, that, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing... As surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to do it. Lie here until morning. Notice what he says there. Lie here until morning. And nothing happens beyond that. 
So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. He said, look, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. See, they're going to think that you're a prostitute and nothing happened, and I don't want your name to be sullied. And he also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold out, hold it out. And when she did so, she, he poured in six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her, and then she went back to town. So you're not going to ever leave me, Ruth, without having more than what you came with. And when Ruth came, for her mother-in-law, came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, can you, can you imagine that scene? Ooh, how did it go? <laughs> My daughter, and then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, you know, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, oh, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for he will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ooh, I wonder what's gonna happen. You should come back and see what happens at the end of this story. But before we do that, let me give you 10 minutes of application, okay? Four of them. Here's the first, be strategic like Naomi, what do we learn from this passage is one of, them, one of the things we learn is that you, ought to, you and I ought to be strategic like Naomi. And I mean by that, that here's Naomi who's praying for her daughter-in-law in chapter one. Oh God, would you give her a husband? But she doesn't respond to her prayer by saying, well, I prayed for her and that's done. Instead, when she starts to see the providence of God move in the direction of answering her prayer, she immediately jumps in and goes, all right, let's fan this baby into flame. Look, I trust you, Lord, to answer the prayer, but when I, I'm, I'm not going to be found lazy. See, prayer does not lead to passivity. Just because you prayed about it, I know that in your heart you want to say, well, I want to trust the Lord, but trusting the Lord does not mean I'm going to sit on my hands here and just wait for God to do everything about it. There, there are in the Bible a couple of errors you can make when it comes to planning. I mean, she makes this strategic plan here. There are a couple errors you can make in the Bible. On the one hand, one of the errors is to be an arrogant boaster, you say, what does that mean? All right, well, uh, James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. So why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if, the, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, though, you boast in your arrogant scheme. See, it's arrogant to think that you control the world in such a way that you can make a plan that comes to fruition exactly like you planned it. Because God is involved in your world and sometimes he turns you another direction and you get mad at him. Don't be arrogant in your schemes and boast about your ability to carry them through. Now some people hear that and they think, oh, I'm not gonna plan then. I'm not going to strategize at all because I don't want to be guilty of arrogance. And so what they do is they say, well, I'm just not, I'm not going, to, I'm going to pray about it. And then I'm just going to leave it to the Lord. Can you imagine that if you had to get a job, for example, and you said, Lord, I'm just going to pray about that. And then you sat on the couch, right? This is every 25-year-old boy in the world. Like they sit on the you need to pound the pavement. Have you looked at Craigslist? Have you been involved on any of the job boards? Well, listen, man, the Lord can bring me those job boards if he wants. Yes, he can. God is sovereign and he can do that. But, but prayer does not mean passivity. Listen, I believe that God is sovereign over salvation and that, and, that, and that God has an elect in the world. 
But that doesn't mean that you sit and I, you and I sit here and do nothing about it. No, we go to Portugal. We go to Turkey. We go and give our lives for it because just because God determines an end doesn't mean he didn't determine the means. Pray, trust God, get to work. Prayer does not mean passivity. You know, I was bodyboarding with my family in, in, in Mexico. We had 25th anniversary. My wife wanted to bring the kids. I love them. Listen, I always make fun of my kids. I love them. It was great. We had a great time. We went to Mexico and we were, we were bodyboarding on the... Bodyboarding is an interesting thing, right? Because you see the waves come. You do nothing to get the waves to come your way. You know that. They just come, right? They're sovereign. God is moving providentially to bring that wave <clears throat> your way. But if you, if you sit there and you just let the wave roll under you, you will never bodyboard. What you do is you see the wave coming and then you say, paddle, 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 paddle. Mm, you work your tail off and you catch the wave. And you're not doing anything at that point, except maybe avoiding, you know, the shark or whatever. Go, oh, go this way. Or... This is the way you and I ought to be living our lives. Looking at the horizon and seeing the providence of God moving and being just ready to strategize and plan, knowing all the well that God could change the direction. And we're happy with that. But God's not going to move a parked bus. So many of us are parked buses. Well, I'm praying about it, though. Yes, move. Trust God. Get to work. Second, then, he'll be strategic like Naomi. Second, be faithful like, like, like Ruth. So back in Ruth chapter 1, <clears throat> I've already referenced this. This is what Ruth says to Naomi when Naomi says, go back to your husband. Go back, or, sorry, go back to your own land. But Ruth won't do it. Ruth replied one Verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people are going to be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I'm going to die. And, and there I'll be buried. See, may, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I'm with you, Naomi, from now until forever. I am by your side, looking after you, taking care. We are in this together makes this grand promise. And then she has a myriad of opportunities to not walk in light of the promise. I mean, there are young men there she could go and give her heart to in the fields. She could get tired of living with Naomi and move back. But she looks at this promise, and then when she has an opportunity to act and fulfill it in front of Boaz, she says, no, that's what I'm doing, because I promised. And Boaz notices it and thinks, what a woman! She's remarkable. See, you and I don't, we don't always treat our promises like that. We, we tend to make more Goldilocks promises. You know, if it's just right, then I'll carry it through. And we do that in little things, like I'd say to my wife, I'm going to clean the garage. You promise? Yeah, I promise. And then later she finds me on the couch. I thought you were going to clean the garage. Oh, something came up. What came up? Like the TV. <laughs> you know, it was, it was on you're not, you're not fulfilling your word. You say, oh, that's, that's silly. Yeah, okay, but what about your business transactions, though? Yeah, yeah, I'll sign that contract, and we'll make an agreement, and I'll follow through on that agreement. I mean, unless. I mean, unless it doesn't go perfectly. Unless it's not just right. Then I'm, I'll look for opportunities to get out of it. Or, or our marriages. Listen, I am happy before God and these witnesses to make all these promises you, to you, honey. 
But I kind of need you to know that in 15 years, if I realize that you're not quite as great as you are right now, then I'm out. Because I, I make these promises as long as it all goes right. Guys, does it ever all go right? Does it ever all go right? No. No, but you and I should be faithful like Ruth. I always, when I see this, I always think of a, uh, of a I was going to show you a film clip. I'm not, I'm not going to. But I always think about Samwise Gamgee, and he's, he's about to go into the, at the end. He's of Lord of the Rings, and it's the end of the, the movie, and Frodo's about to take off and get in the, take the ring up to Mordor himself, and Sam just says, no. Frodo says, no, go back, go back. I got to do this alone. And Sam just keeps barging into the water, and he's drowning, and he has to be saved by Frodo. They get in the canoe there, and Samwise Gamgee looks at him and says, I promised Frodo. I made a promise, and I don't mean to break it. Is that the way you are? You make promises, you don't mean to break them. No matter what. Strategic like Naomi, and faithful like Ruth, honorable like Boaz. Gentlemen, can I speak to you for a minute? I want you to just for a second imagine that you're in the situation of Boaz here, Yes? And by that, I mean that you're, there you are, you're doing your hard work, you're there at the threshing floor, you had a little bit to drink, you're satisfied, you're in good spirits, you go to sleep in the middle of the night, there is a beautiful smelling woman who you've had your eye on for a while, lying at your feet, essentially throwing herself at you. What do you do? I gotta tell you, for most of human history, the answer to that question is I will do whatever I want. Because you've, you know, you guys have read the newspapers on the internet sites, yes? Have you, gentlemen? You've seen that? So you've seen movie producers uh, up in their up in their hotel rooms inviting women up and saying, hey, if you just, you know, do these particular favors for me, you can further your career. Political leaders doing the same thing, and we think, oh, yes, but that's outside the church, and yet I could give you a litany of Christian pastors who've done the same, who've used their spiritual power to gain sexual favor. And what you find in this passage is a man who has all the opportunity and all the power and all the freedom to do it and get away with it, and he says, you, honey, you just, just over there, you lie over there, and I'll be over here. And we'll do this the right way. So the way you treat women who are not your wife. First Timothy 5, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That define our relationships with our sisters in Christ. Is it? Is it the way it is for us? Shameful, let's be honest. It's shameful that in the church today, the Me Too movement is alive and well. Why? It should never be, boys. It should never be. Honorable like, like Boaz. And finally, above all, you got to see Jesus here, don't you? You say where? Well, Tim Keller does a really lovely job of trying to explain at one point that every love story, why is it we love love stories so much? 
We watch them over and over and over again. We know the story arcs. We know what we're going to get with them. Why do we love them so much? And his argument, and it's a good one, is that all of those stories are faint shadows of the greatest love story there is. And that ultimately, when you see a Boaz saving a Ruth, what you see is a faint shadow predicting and foreshadowing Jesus who comes to us and we have nothing and we need everything and there we are in desperate need and he says, no, I'll take you. I'll make this right. I'll redeem you. And we never go to him and come away empty-handed. He fills us with what? Six, ten bushels full of joy and privilege and blessing over and over again and he follows through. Yeah, we need a true and better Boaz, and we have one. Don't we? We have one. So you can read this book as many times through as you want, but at the end, you need to constantly see the Lord Jesus. Listen, you should come back for next week because it finishes well. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and for this book in the Bible, and I'm thankful that we get to spend time looking at it. There's more to be said here I pray that what I have said here, Lord, be faithful to you and what it is that you've embedded in your holy word, which you now use your spirit to press into us the meaning of it, make it affective, drive it into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.